This week on Ultra 64, I hunger to talk about classic arcade games, because we are talking about Midway's Greatest Arcade Hits, Volume 1. Welcome, everyone, to Ultra 64. We are the Internet's comprehensive Nintendo 64 podcast. Each and every son of a bitch in week, we are playing a different, randomly selected game from the Nintendo 64 catalog. We're pumping, putting up our quarters, we're dropping them in the slots, and we are getting a horrible callus on our thumbs. And my name is Steve Guntling. I am Mommy, Daddy, Mikey, and Woody Siskowski. <laughs> that's, that's the family that you rescue in Robotron. I learned this from the trivia. Well, the, look at that. I, I did not even learn that much, so that's awesome. We are talking today about Midway's Greatest Arcade Hits Volume 1, a title I need to keep looking at because uh, it's kind of just a random assembly of words. And they, also, they Mel Brooks you on this one. They Mel Brooks me, and also it's like I, I confuse it with Midway's Greatest Arcade Treasures, which is another series that they did after this, so like I keep wanting to call it that. But no, that's not what this is. This is Midway's no, Greatest uh... Arcade Hits. Oh, yeah, Midway's greatest arcade. This is hits, but there's no uh, there's no volume two, at least on the N64. Not on the N64. The Dreamcast was the only one who got that honor. But uh, these ones are slightly further along the timeline than the ones in the Namco were. I think the Namco ones were much more kind of like elementary, like very early arcades. And this is kind of the next step in that process. So they're a little bit more advanced. They're a little closer to what we might expect from arcade games. Uh but I mean, they're still like you're really going back. These oh, are yeah. these are pretty rudimentary. Like most of these games have about one screen worth of graphics, yeah. even if some of the the art assets might change a little bit. Oh yeah. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about Midway themselves. They've come up several times on this show because they are an extremely prolific developer, and I think the N64 era was kind of when they were at their most productive, I think. Uh, we talked about all the cruising games and the uh, Mortal Kombat games, and God, there were so many others, several racing games. and The NFL, the NFL Blitz NFL games, Blitz. Um, NBA Hang Time. Absolutely. All of these are Midway games. All the classics, all the classics. Um, so yeah, no, no better time to dig into their history a little bit, though. So Midway was founded as Midway Manufacturing back in 1958. Uh, when the company first started, they produced equipment and mechanized games for amusement parks and traveling carnivals, hence the word Midway. That's where the title comes from. The company earned its first huge success when it scored the rights to distribute the mega-hit Space Invaders in the U.S. in 1978. That also led to them getting the rights to distribute uh, Namco's Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. So right off the bat, Midway is releasing the three biggest arcade hits of all time uh so that puts them in a pretty good position and they've kind of become the uh the dominant force in arcade production in the early 80s so they merged uh in 1982 with the pinball producers bally to perform bally midway and that's when they started producing their own original games rather than just publishing them their very first game under the bally midway label was spy hunter in 1983 which we will talk about shortly uh, this was followed up by a string of hits throughout the 80s and early 90s. I mean, they had Rampage, they had Total Carnage, they had Arch Rivals. It wasn't until the double whammy of Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam in 1992 and 1993, though, that they really, really blew up. Those games are 
unbelievably massive hits. I think they said that the NBA Jam arcade game made close to a billion dollars in quarters. I mean, that's the exaggerated phrase that they use either way. And Mortal Kombat, obviously, we've touched on that a great deal, but that was a bona fide sensation, the likes of which video gaming has really never seen uh, since. So, yeah, Midway was in a pretty good position in the 90s. Um, this led them to... Uh, they, they started producing some of the biggest arcade cabinets ever, and they started moving into home production in a major way. And pretty soon, the company was rapidly expanding, and they started swallowing up developers and IPs from dozens of other smaller or kind of failing uh, outfits. I think the most notable one we can talk about for this show is Williams. Williams did a lot of uh, arcade games. A lot of the arc- most of the games on this di- on this cartridge are Williams games originally. But uh, Midway bought them up uh, after they were kind of struggling a little bit. They wanted to shift back to just pinball and not do arcade games anymore. So Midway now has all of those IP. Um, So yeah, like I said, their output was prolific in the 90s, but it was also pretty inconsistent. Um, I think there are some companies that like seeing their logo on the box is kind of a mark of quality. And Midway isn't necessarily one of those. Midway is kind of more of a crapshoot. Uh, I would because... say I would say Midway is a mark of fun. Midway is a mark of wackiness because um, I that's one thing I've always appreciated about Midway is that even when their games are not great, there's still a sense that like the developers there are having fun and there's lots of like goofy codes or sort of over the top you know, content in there. And it's just usually very silly. And that was kind of borne out in our conversation with uh, Dan Amrick, who we had on the NBA Hangtime episode. He uh, knows a lot of those guys and hung out in a lot of those circles back in the 90s. And he kind of bore out kind of what we suspected, that it is a very silly kind of workplace with a bunch of dudes who just like having fun. That's kind of their thing. But uh, I don't think they were necessarily meant to be uh, uh, corporate pirates or anything. I think they uh, they started making a lot of bad investments and putting out some pretty uh, uh, unmemorable uh, original games, let's say. You know, we got, uh, I think like right in a row, they had a bunch of flops. So like The Suffering, Area 51, PsyOps, Stranglehold, and Wheelman were all kind oh, of man. disappointments in PsyOps a row. PsyOps is an awesome game. PsyOps is oh, great. That was gonna be if you for our Patreon episode. That was gonna be the game I suggested. If I had okay, I, I'd be down to play PsyOps again. It's been a long time, but that game. I mean, that one actually sold okay, but it. I don't think any of those games that you named are like no, no, really none of them that are that bad. bad. They just didn't they really just catch some... on. Uh, but like PsyOps in particular was expensive for them because they got caught up in a lawsuit over it because somebody claimed that uh, the idea infringed on their original screenplay. Uh, so that that was kind of got them caught up in a legal battle for a really long time. I think ultimately the judge favored Midway on that, but they still had the legal fees to deal with. Midway had gone into the thoughts of that person and stolen their screenplay. Don't you hate it when that happens? I mean, it's still technically not illegal. I mean, you know... <laughs> That screenplay was called Annie Hall. They traveled back in time as well. It's a book about it's a it's a it's a movie about the Shadowgate conspiracy. Uh, uh, that's my Woody Allen. It's perfect. That, that was a questionable Woody. No, that Allen, was a perfect Woody Allen. That was like okay. it was like Mr. Ants was in the room himself. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, in 2009, uh, Midway filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and they sold off all of their assets to Warner Brothers. And uh, I'll have more to say on that in a little bit because there's some interesting developments with Warner Brothers. But for now, let's jump into this game because we have so many arcade games to talk about on here. Yeah, we're, we have we're, six we've got to talk about six games. We're talking about a I whopping mean, six games. 
Uh, and that's two whole more than the PlayStation got. So uh, suck at PlayStation, as uh, always. PlayStation was really shortchanged here. Oh, yeah. Because, these, you know, I, I, was, I'm ex- I was excited to play these games. I had a nice time playing these games. But about a half an hour in, I was about, I was said, you know, I've played all the games mm-hmm. and I don't need to play them anymore. That's kind <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little bit of that. Um, all right, let's jump into this. Midway's Greatest Arcade Hits Volume 1, that was released November 14th, 2000, developed by Digital Eclipse and published by Midway. It was also released on Dreamcast, the Saturn, and the Game Boy Advance. I'm amazed they were still releasing Saturn games at this time, but I think that, that did come out a few years before uh, I the I mean, I imagine version. this game is about as cheap as it could possibly be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> they did you got the code laying around. Okay, like let's just steal this emulator from the internet. They didn't really break the bank making that interface. I can tell you that <laughs> they didn't. Uh, they didn't break a sweat on that one. So Digital Eclipse, uh, that company was founded in 1992, and they mostly focus on arcade ports on the Game Boy Color. So uh, we talked about a lot of like. They they've done the Game Boy Color ports for a lot of games that we've talked about. So like Dis- but we have we've never played the Game Boy Color games. This, no. this is a weird. I don't know. This, depending on how much effort we want to put into this, this is like a real weird offshoot of the N64 world. Yeah. It's like these Game Boy Color ports that cannot possibly be ports of the game. Like, what are you doing if you're playing Turok 3 on your Game Boy Color? Yeah, what is that? Like, how, are just, we, how are we yeah. calling that the same game? Yeah, that's... Perfect Dark on your Game Boy. It's yeah. like, yeah. It, it, oh, you, you've really squandered down these 3D graphics. You nailed it. Where, yeah. where, where do I stick my expansion pack in the Game Boy Color here? <laughs> but, I mean, they handled a couple of, like, a little more basic arcade games, like, that might work okay. They handled Rampage 2. That would probably play fine on a Game Boy. Yeah. Uh, Disney's Tarzan. I'm sure there's a workable version there. Mortal Kombat 4, not so much. Uh, I, I've, there has never been a good handheld Mortal Kombat game. Uh, no. And actually, they tend to go out of their way to be actively worse than you could possibly hope. Play, yep. play Mortal Kombat on Game Boy Advance sometime if you want to see that. <laughs> um, so the company briefly rebranded as Backbone Entertainment in the mid-2000s, where they focused. Uh, they still focused primarily on ports during that time, but they did have a couple of original titles of their own. The most notable one being uh, Death Junior, which was kind of briefly positioned as like the PSP's killer app. Um, yeah, it was like that in the medieval reboot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Man. people were like, hmm, maybe this is not going to go anywhere. The PSP sure was a bad system. That was fun. That, that, that well, like cramped my hand playing it. Yeah, it's not very comfortable to use, but that thing sold a lot. It did. Like, no, it was. Believe a... it or not, it was like a legitimate like competition to Nintendo, and then the Vita was not. The Vita was Even not. The Vita is a much nicer I'll, system. The Vita is better in just about every possible way, but yeah, it's also way more niche and weird. Um, but that's for a different podcast. Uh, but yeah, Digital Clips, they are still going. And uh, one of their executives, you might be interested to know if you're a longtime Retronauts uh, listener, is uh, that they uh, one of their executives is Frank Cifaldi, who used to be a co-host on that show. And I believe he used to write for EGM back in the day, if I remember. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, like we said, the PS version only has four games, and that's Defender, Sinistar, Robotron, and Joust. So the four non-Midway games on this Midway collection. <laughs> and the Dreamcast and the Saturn versions get two additional games over the N64. So they get Bubbles and a Defender 2. Uh, I don't think anyone's have, breaking no the bank idea. for Bubbles. I think I, maybe I've played Bubbles. I think you're like, I think you control, you basically, control, the game takes place on a sink. It's a sink. You're a soap bubble. You, yeah. Yeah. That's a weird that's game. That's a very weird it's not, game. It's not very good. No, no. But it's it's interesting if you're just like, okay, I see the thought process that went into making this. Okay. You were, you were... 
you had uh, writer's block and you were doing the dishes. <laughs> yeah, they're like, all right, all right, Johnson, we need a pitch for a new game. Go wash your hands and come in here and give us a new pitch, okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just uh, go to the bathroom real quick. Uh, happy birthday to you. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Oh, yeah, it's about uh, washing your hands. It's a soap theme game. It's very, very timely. That developer, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes, thank you. Thank you, doctor. Um, all right, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about the interface here. So this game uses kind of a very, very ugly. Uh, oh wait, so yeah, yeah, now we're talking about uh, we're talking about the game itself. We're not talking about bubbles. We're not talking anymore. about bubbles anymore. Yeah, now we're talking about Midway's greatest arcade hit. So the the interface here, where you can select from the different games, it's like a big blue field with a bunch of very, very rudimentary three D models of arcade cabinets that you. This is like um, if you were in the if you were in the eighties and you. Let's say, uh, actually, in Mortal Kombat 3, mm-hmm. one of the fatalities that Liu Kang has is he'll actually drop um, a Mortal Kombat arcade machine on the character. Right. And so let's say you are Scorpion and you get that arcade Scorpion. machine dropped on you. Mm-hmm. This is where you wake up. This is the purgatory that you wake up in, <laughs> is this void of Midway Arcade Games blackness. Choose your weapons. Yeah, now you have to yeah, fight. exactly. You have to fight your way there's, out. There's no environment here at all. No. There's just sort of six seven branching paths that you can sort of choose from to very pixelated pictures of these arcade games also with two very noticeable gaps where two other games would have gone you know like i bet i'm willing to bet the dreamcast version is this exact same interface with just those two slots filled in like so <laughs> i so i'm that's, sh- that's pretty lazy that's pretty lazy i want to look at the ps1 version and see if it's just that minus two slots like i'm willing to bet but. also it's just that's so dirty too because it's not like there wasn't room for them to fit eight games on this on this cartridge no. these games are like the memory space of just nothing it's like what 96k um, for joust i learned like, that in the trivia like, yeah your tom your tamagotchi yeah um your virtual pet takes up more memory than uh probably all these six games put together really no reason um, not to cram it all in there you could you could cram in more make it 10 make it 12 there's yeah. really no it, yeah I, it, it does feel did this game come out after the namco collection i think it you, did pretty sure um okay so i, I kind of is a sense of like hey Namco only had six games, and they sold a lot of copies, so let's sort of space these out. Yeah, I mean that... And the fact that they put different ones on the Dreamcast, like, did they expect people to buy the Dreamcast and the N64 version just I, to get get the full suite? I guess. Like, I don't know. I'd be pissed if I did that, and then, like, two years later, the Arcade Treasures comes out with, like, all of these games plus ten more. Like, yeah. I'd be so irritated with that. But, like, this game has, uh, the one little thing that they add is a little uh, trivia machine where you can go up and you can access it and learn some trivia about uh, classic Midway arcade games. Uh, The problem is, like, you kind of just have to go in knowing this stuff because you... This is the most bonker, like, this is crazy hard trivia. Super hard. You, you, my friend Steve, are an A-plus fella at trivia. Thank you. And... I know I know a pretty good amount about, you know, these games. I what was your high score? My high score was six out of fifteen. I did like nine out of fifteen. Ooh, but like wow. some of those were just blind lucky guesses. Like Yeah, so like nine of them you mean. Because these questions are like, at what street did they first premiere Joust? Yeah. And you're like, who knows this? Or what color in Root Beer Tapper of cowboy hats do they not wear? Yeah. <laughs> or, or like who hell, who holds the all-time high score for Defender? And it's like, and it just gives it's you not even li- names. No, it it's gives you initials. initials and numbers. And this is 2000. So like, even if I were to look that up now, like I don't know. 
you know, that's that's probably long since been beaten. So, I mean, and there and is even, no even way to access this information on the cart itself. And Wikipedia wasn't a thing when this game came out. So, like, there's really kind of, you just have to kind of know or just keep doing it again. even worse than that, it doesn't tell you what the right answer is. No. So you're not really learning stuff. It'll just, you'll, you'll select an answer. It's probably going to be wrong. And then it'll give you this high-pitched buzz and go wrong and then move on to the next question. And you're like, well... Well, I, how am I supposed to improve Midway Arcade? Well, that's the that's like, the, how am I supposed to learn and get better? That's the replayability of it because it's the same quiz every time. So you know, I tested that. I went back in. It is the same quiz in the same order every time. So I think. Oh, with, so like if you restart the game, you mean? Yeah, I was wondering. It's like okay, is there like a, a set of like. 45 like questions and then they just give you a random 15 every time no they, it's just the same 15 questions every time so no but if you if you keep playing it's a different one like if you play 15 and then you come back and play it without resetting the system it's different oh, is it different if you don't reset okay yeah, okay so there it is yeah it might be that it's say like this game uses a memory card um to save your high scores mm-hmm. and it's possible that maybe it saves what quiz you're on okay um, but I, I don't know how many quizzes there are, but it doesn't really matter because these quizzes are no fun. Yeah, there's no real um, reason to do the quiz. It's just there. I mean, I guess we can say, like, it has that edge over Namco Museum. Namco Museum on N64 didn't have an interface at all. It was just a basic screen with a list of games, uh, which was like, at the time, I remember us commenting that that was kind of a bummer because the PlayStation version of that game lets you wander around an actual 3D Namco Museum and like learn facts like this and like do things like that but uh but the N64 version didn't have it uh and I think I, I, having seen the Midway one I think I would have just preferred a list of games and then maybe fit a few more games on there you know just do that like yeah I I, I really want like a little section where you can just give the briefest like history like you know yeah just like a kid's paper on Robotron and like the very brief history of Eugene Jarvis maybe yeah just something there that gives it some personality, some stats about the game. Maybe tell us who the highest ranked player is, so then we can learn, use that in trivia. Let's do it. Like, that would be kind of fun in a super boring, nerdy way, is like, maybe the answers to all these trivia are hidden in the documentation that's in the game. That'd be great. I think that should... I mean, I, I sound like a huge dork proposing this, but... No, I love this idea. And then, like, the more, like, quizzes you successfully answer, you can unlock another game or something like that, you know? That's, yeah, that'd be a f- exactly. That'd be a fun way to do this, and you'd... you'd... I mean, this is the barest of bare bones. Yeah, you'd be learning while you were being taught, and it'd be very, very <laughs> useful. All right, uh, I kind of put the games in sort of a random order of, like reading them so uh we'll just we'll just jump into it Uh, we're going to talk about each of the six games on this cartridge starting with defender uh this is one of the first of many classic games made by mr eugene jarvis who we have talked about many times before we have a small shrine to him in the ultra 64 studios (laughs) he is the creator of defender and robotron and smash tv and total carnage and the cruisin usa series I think the last game he worked on was uh, in 2017, a game called Next Machina, which I never played. Uh, I don't know anything about it. I have I have played that. It is it is fun. It is okay. a twin stick shooter. Um, oh. It's sort of very bland in a sci-fi environment, but there's sort of a lot of just random carnage that is going around. Mm-hmm. Um, I have. It's not quite total, but it is definitely a lot of random carnage. I, I was going th- in this time of me having lots of extra time. I was going through lots of old files on my computer, mm-hmm. and I actually found a computer game that I had made. In um, actually, um, well, I had found a computer game that I had programmed when I went to the DigiPen 
game camp okay. um, over one, over a few weeks in one summer, and it is a Robotron knockoff called Carnage Squared. Ooh, I like uh, that. Does it yeah, play okay? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was trying to run it off the disc, which ran ran pretty slowly. It, it is pretty cute because it's just I am a terrible artist, <laughs> and you know. 15 year old me was probably even worse but it's just stick mans then once you get enough score like an additional brown stick man gun appears in your other hand all right i think we need to do like a whole patreon episode on carnage squared uh we can we can interview the creator i know the i know a guy um yeah we can make that work yeah it only takes about five minutes to beat yeah that's great that's my sweet spot (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, Defender was released in 1981. This was a collaboration between uh, Jarvis and his longtime partner Larry Demar. Uh, the two were hired by pinball giant Williams Entertainment to help them develop their first original video game. Uh, they'd done some Pong ripoffs in the past, but they wanted something that was kind of new to make a name for themselves. Um, and so, Jarvis and Demar were using Space Invaders and Asteroids as the most direct examples for this. Um, and in the initial development, like, their whole idea was basically, what if Space Invaders but turned on its side? And it worked fine, but it was also like, they're like, all right, this is kind of boring. So then they played Asteroids, and they liked the wraparound effect that you have in that game. You know, you go off in one corner of the screen, and you come back in the opposite corner, you know. They liked that. So they kind of ran with that idea, using those um wraparound effects to create the illusion of, like, movement across an alien plane. So, like... It keeps scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, which is a pretty innovative idea for the time, actually. This is one of the first games that actually did that. And they're pretty basic, like, line segment. I don't think this is even vector graphics, but it's pretty basic, like, black and color graphics. Um, but, yeah, as they started to develop the idea a little more, they they wanted to create this infinite alien landscape, kind of. And that's sort of what they did, actually, you know, pretty pretty impressively. Uh, and they they kind of started adding some new layers of complexity every time they did another pass on it. So they added uh, civilians that you need to save, and then they added all these different weapons that you can use. And they, they really liked the hyperspace and asteroids, so they built one of those into this game. So uh, with all of that hubbub uh, and all of that work that they put into it, uh, initially fans were not very receptive to it. They thought it was too complicated. They thought it was too difficult. They were right about that last part. Um, but it went on to be a huge, huge hit. It sold 50,000 arcade cabinets, and it was Williams' best-selling arcade game of all time. And it was the best-selling arcade game of all time, period, until Pac-Man came out. So for a very brief period, Defender was the biggest game in the world. I didn't I didn't realize it was pre-Pac-Man. Um, it was like right yeah, in between. I will s- yeah, I will... I I think that the critics were right on this one. I think that Defender is too complicated and too hard. Um, it's definitely like a very clear sort of um, evolution of what Space Invaders is, um, but the mechanics are just kind of somehow they manage to be complicated, even though the goal is just like fly around and shoot alien ships. Yeah, and there's um, there's a lot going on in this game. I mean, it's this is a stressful experience. You know, uh, I think they do a pretty good job trying to make things fairly comprehensive. I like I like the little map screen at the top. Kind of shows. Yeah, but it's just full of a bunch of random dots. Well, like it's so hard to tell which dot is which. After, yeah, in the early going, it's easier because it's just green dots and white dots. So the green dots are your mutants coming down from space, and your white dots are the astronauts on the ground. If you see a green dot starting to fly up with a uh, white dot, then you need to go over there and give that your attention. Um, 
I learned the hard way playing this game. I haven't played this in years and years and years. Uh, but playing this again right now, uh, I remember that you can absolutely shoot the astronauts uh, on the <laughs> yeah, ground they, they sort in of the get air. Pulled up, like the 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 UFOs will come down and grab them and sort of fly up to the top of the screen. You have to shoot the UFO and then rescue the astronaut as he's falling. Yeah, depending yeah, on like you if said, they're low to the ground, like you can just let them fall and they'll be fine. But if they're if they're up above like the mountain level, the highest mountain level, then they'll die. Uh, yeah, so, it, but you can absolutely, like, miss a shot and take out an astronaut and miss the alien completely. But if they do make it up with your astronaut, then that astronaut turns into a mutant with, with like, a little tractor beam ability that kind of sucks you in. Oh, okay. And uh, makes that. things much harder on you. Yeah, I mean, and it is just uh, one recurring theme, I think, with all of these games is that these games are hard. They're really hard. And they were, cl- they were clearly, I mean, as is the case, games are... Cl- Arcade games are clearly designed to not let you get very far on one quarter. Oh, yeah. But that, I don't know, that doesn't translate very well to the home console because since they sort of have a set amount of lives here, it's like you can't, I don't know, I was going to say you can't keep pumping quarters in to see the rest of the game, but then with that said, there isn't really a rest of the game. Not really. It's just kind of, each of these games, I think, kind of just, each level is basically like the first. I, I really appreciate, like, the idea behind Defender. I think it's very cool. Uh, and I think this is a pretty important game because, I mean, we were just talking about uh, Star Soldier a little while ago when we were talking about horizontal and vertical shooters. And this is kind of the first one of those, uh, at yeah. least the first one to have some of those basic mechanics. I mean, obviously, the formula so that, would be changed by time. That's the inferior orientation. Yeah, yeah. Much as, much as is straight is the inferior orientation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, Defender was never really my jam. I can I can respect it. I know there are some people who really the really Defender Defenders, the Defender Defenders. Yes, absolutely. They really stand by this game. I, I remember like I think I don't know. I remember reading some EGM article the first time I ever heard of this game. They were referring to it as the greatest arcade game ever made. So like no way. Some people are really really into it and I think it takes an incredible amount of skill to be very very good at defender. Like so I can respect it. This isn't one I come back to for fun though. I think it's a bit too stressful of an experience uh and just a little too complicated for a basic arcade game. Um but you might have more luck with the sequels and the remakes. Uh so after the success of this first game Jarvis and Demar were approached to make a sequel. They opted instead to do an enhanced remake of the original, which they called Stargate, uh, and that came out just six months after the original. Uh, but since then, uh, the film and TV series uh, uh, since bought the copyright to the word Stargate, so now it's commonly just known as Defender 2 on home consoles, even though it is basically still just like a slightly enhanced version of Defender 1. Uh, in 1991, Jarvis and DeMar consulted on a game, uh, a 16-bit update to their game called Strike Force which used similar gameplay, but it had kind of a sleeker and more detailed interface and new weapons. But that game was a bit of a flop, uh, and most people really never got to play it. Like, I'd never heard of it before. Uh, I had to look it up on YouTube, and I didn't recognize any of the screens. It it does just look like more detailed Defender. Uh, This game was, uh, yeah, uh, in 1995, Atari published Defender 2000, but this one had the misfortune of being a Atari Jaguar exclusive, which is the only words worse than play PSP exclusive. Uh, there's no getting back from being an Atari Jaguar exclusive. Uh, most people never played that one either. And then in 2002, the series did get a full-fledged 3D remake from Midway. 
uh, that was okay. I remember, like, I played a little bit of that, and it, it's yeah, it, it was it was fine. It was just kind of like a, a, a pretty solid space shooter. It's just not a brand that sort of matters for any kind of remake because it's just you know looking back, it's just the most generic of generic shooters. Like, obviously, that was enough at the time but it's like you're not going to go back to it to like get a handle on that sweet defender personality no no it's i mean every game every horizontal shooter is a remake of defender kind of and all of them have a little bit more personality and more going on and more to say than defender does so it's it's suffering from being first a little bit like but as as kind of a museum piece it's really interesting to go back and play but this isn't one of those classic arcade games that holds up necessarily as much as you might think uh yeah it's fine it's fine but let's move on to the next game which uh i'm gonna call my favorite surprise on this cartridge and that is sinistar um oh interesting somehow i don't think i ever actually played sinistar before um i I mean i must have encountered it at some point because this was like a fairly notable game but i don't think i ever actually sat down and played it and figured out the mechanics of it and I, I really had fun playing this. It has confusing mechanics. I played this game on, there was a Super Nintendo port uh, version of this, Midway Arcade mm-hmm. Hits, um, that I think had Robotron and Sinistar and Defender. Um, so I played it a decent amount there, but this game scared the hell out of oh, me. Oh, God. This is like, this is one of the most frightening games ever made. Really? Okay, like, okay. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, just the voice on Sinistar is one of the all-time scariest voices in a video game. I mean, it, it kind of is, just because, like, he is fucking hard to take down. Like, it is really real. I never managed to take him down. Uh, and he is aggressive in pursuing you, so... He is very fast. And so, yeah, you're just this sort of... This game is comparable to Asteroids. Yeah. Like, it kind of has a similar vibe as Asteroids, but it's a much larger play space. Yeah. Um, and the goal of this game is also very opaque. I, I've never been crazy about Sinistar. I'm surprised to hear that you really enjoyed I, it. But, yeah, I um, had fun with it, but we'll go into a little detail. So Sinistar okay, was yeah. first released in February of 1983. Once again, this was a Williams game. And like you said, initially this looked just kind of like uh, another Asteroids clone. You know, you are a little triangular ship. You're flying around in a field of asteroids with a blaster. But uh, unlike the other, unlike those games, there's kind of more of a bumper car mechanic to the obstacles, which I actually appreciated. Yeah, like when you hit stuff, you don't die, which is very confusing. I, you know what? I appreciate it because, like, if this game, uh, you, if, if you died every time you got hit in this game, yeah. it would be unplayable. So I think right, we definitely needed to do that. Um, yeah, the bumper car mechanic was interesting because um, the action gets very, very frantic. But in in most arcade games of the time, the goal was simply to clear a screen and move on. But Sinistar is a little different. You have to shoot enemies and shoot obstacles to try and obtain these very small glittering crystals, which... They are so fucking small. They're really hard to see. It's it's absurd. They just look like... They, they look like a pixel error on the screen. Like, they don't look like they're integrated into the game in some way. Well, I think I but, didn't know what was going on the first time I booted this up because I thought those were just, like, fading into the stars. Like, I, I didn't right. know what the goal is. But your goal is to collect enough of these little crystals, which are called Cinecite, to construct what are called Cinnabombs. Not Cinnabon, the uh, cinnamon roll franchise. Cinnabombs are the only thing that you can use to damage Sinistar, which is a gigantic 
evil was he a robot or is he a planet or what what he's he's the size oh, he's everything he's the size he's a of a skeleton planet. robot planet yeah he's yeah he's he's like the biggest thing on the field by a wide margin he's bigger than all the little planetoids and asteroids uh and he's got this evil skull wolf robot face he kind of looks like the insignia for the witcher uh okay know. yeah but like if you put the ghostbusters bracket around it like no witcher that's what sinistar looks like uh, and um, so he he doesn't start off in the level. Uh, he is being built while you are working and gathering all these crystals. And all the little enemies around you are gathering any loose crystals that you shoot loose and don't catch. And they're taking that and they're using it to build Sinistar. So once he is built, he will announce himself with one of uh, seven audio clips. He's either going to say, beware I live, I hunger, run, 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 I hunger coward, I am Sinistar, beware coward, and run coward. So he's real big on coward. Run, coward, run. And uh, yeah, and he's also got this very unsettling roar that he does sometimes when he's approaching you, which sounds very inhuman. Yeah, and this game has, um, you know, all of these games are very limited on their amount of music. I don't think most of them have no music. Um, And so, and his voice samples are very loud. Like, and he'll just kind of come out of nowhere and the way this game is designed too like um i was learning in the trivia of the game that it was originally right before it was released arcade um, owners were saying that kids were going too far on one quarter so they like um made it harder right before it got released and that really shows yeah why do you need that okay so like in order to take down sinistar you need 13 of those bombs i think you need to collect like five crystals for every one bomb so or something like that is it that many or is it it may not even be that many i think it's that many i thought it was just one to one oh it might be one to one maybe it's one to one i think maybe some of the little warrior guys were stealing my crystals when i thought i was getting them but it it seemed like it was taking a while um the bombs are pretty hard to aim uh, they, they go out behind you they go out behind you which i was not expecting uh but like i think I think they target Sinistar a little bit. Like, I think they try and drift towards him a little bit. Uh, I played with Nicole I mean, a little he's bit. he's very big. So. He's very big. I, I played with Nicole a little bit. Like, she picks it up for the first time and scores, like, seven direct hits on Sinistar without even really, like, breaking a sweat. And the most I've been able well, to land am, on him was two. I am amazed. Yeah. Because I have never had any luck, like, hitting Sinistar once in this. Oh, yeah. It was, it was uh, prodigious. It was like, holy shit, how are you doing this? I don't even know. And then turns out she's also really, really good at joust. So we'll, we'll yeah, okay. um, we'll, we'll have to have a tournament sometime. Now this game is only most of these games are only one player in the sense that it's all alternating, right? Yeah, I think you can play with two controllers, but it is going back and forth. I don't think there yeah. is any local. And I, call. I believe joust is two players simultaneously. Yeah, I right? believe so. But I think that is the only yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it takes a long time to take Sinistar down. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's a very frantic game, but there is room for some, like, quick strategy. Like, say, like, if you shoot a planetoid too quickly, it'll break apart without releasing crystals. Uh, and so, like, you don't want to shoot too quickly, but you also don't want to wait around. Like, sometimes so you might have to, like, shoot a couple times. If no crystals are coming off, you might need to move on. Uh, some crystals will go flying off into space and then you have to kind of weigh whether it's worth the extra time to go and grab that or to let it go and move on to something else but knowing that an enemy can grab that crystal and use it to make Sinistar faster and like and sometimes you can use your sin bombs early to blow up a planet 
but you're not really guaranteed to get a certain number of crystals out of that. So there's a risk and reward element to it. I don't know. I found it very satisfying. Um, it, it is, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it's very, um, frantic and, uh, very, very difficult, but every time Sinistar pops up, like it's, it's scary and it's fun and it kind of takes things to a whole new level. It's like, because then it becomes a case of like, all right, you still need to assemble your bombs. Like you probably won't have enough bombs by the time he's built. So you're still running around trying to get everything, but now you're being chased by something that's really huge and really fast and will literally eat you till you explode. Uh, which is not something you really want, unless you are trying to go for the special glitch in the game. Uh, did you know about the glitch? I don't know. I didn't know about this. Uh, no. So apparently, if you're down to zero lives and Sinistar is just about to eat you, if another enemy shoots you right when that happens, then Sinistar will still eat. That'll bring you down to zero lives, and then Sinistar will still eat you, which will take you down to negative one life which the system reads as resetting the life counter, so suddenly you'll have 255 lives, uh, which makes things easier. But I imagine that's a pretty hard glitch to uh, manufacture. You have to get very, you very, get lucky, very yeah. lucky. Yeah, it's hard to kind of manufacture that one. Um, so as far as, like, the sequels or, or legacy or anything of it, I mean... This got next to nothing. There's next to no follow-up on Sinistar. Like, uh, there was supposed to be an Atari 2600 version, but that was scrapped because the video game crash happened that same exact year. Uh, so it didn't find a home console until William's Greatest Arcade Hits in 1995 on the Super Nintendo. And then in 1999, THQ released the one and only attempt at a reboot, which was called Sinistar Unleashed. This was exclusive to Windows. Uh, and the gameplay was similar, but now it's a, a full-roaming 3D environment where you're behind your ship. And uh, there aren't as many enemies on screen. It's mostly just asteroids now. And uh, you're waiting for Sinistar to come through a giant portal in the middle of the level. And when he comes out, he looks like a giant, like, cockroach with one eye. It's like, it, it's kind of, it's not as cool of a design anymore. Um, but the game looks pretty good. I, I looked it up, uh, looked at clips on uh, YouTube. It was only ever released on Windows, and it wasn't a big hit, so most people probably will never play it, but it looks kind of fun. Um, as far as that, like, I think these days, like, if you know anything about Sinistar, it's, you know, I hunger, or you know, beware I live, because you probably played Warcraft or World of Warcraft and heard them, the, heard the orcs mention that when you click on them too many times. Uh, but yeah, you know, they, they never followed up on this again, and uh, I, that kind of sucks, because um, I, I, I enjoy this game. I don't know. Okay, well, that's that's good to hear that um, someone was a fan, because this is probably my least favorite game on the collection. Ooh. I just, I find it, it moves so fast, and is so stressful and hard to control. I'm, I, this one just has never grabbed me. Yeah. And maybe I'm just still scarred and traumatized from that uh, Sinistar shouts from when I was a kid. It could be. He's like the original, like, Resident Evil nemesis, you know? He's like this unstoppable, yeah. beastly monster that'll pop up every once in a while. It's a strange, um, just sort of question of these old arcade games. It's just kind of odd, because these games, you can never win them. No, no. It's just kind of a depressing, depressing concept, and it is... We'll get to that, too, when we talk about Robotron, but it's like... The robots have already taken well, over, and so are, are we. Have we made it to let's Robotron? Let's talk about Robotron now. Oh, Why not? We're, we're in the zone here. Uh, I don't have as many notes on this because we've actually done a whole episode on Robotron before. Uh, look back on that one. That's when we did Robotron sixty four, Load Runner three D, and Paperboy. Uh, all very ugly games. Some of them pretty fun. Uh, including Robotron 64, which we actually wound up kind of liking. Um, but this is uh, Robotron... But we certainly did not like it as much no. 
as the original. No, definitely not. This is this is original flavor Robotron. Uh, so this was released by Williams once again in 1982, once again by Eugene Jarvis. And it is the original twin-stick shooter. You use two joysticks, to uh, one to walk and one to aim. You clear out all the robots in the field, save all the humans, and then move on to the next level, accompanied by, and I had forgotten about this, a genuinely horrible noise. Uh, I think, but it's it's an awesome. Oh, it's an iconic noise. horrible noise. Obviously, like it's uh, it's it's an intentionally horrible noise. Like it's meant to be alarming and and disconcerting. So, like in that sense, it is successful. But it also just sounds like something horrible has happened. Like the presentation of Robotron is one of the most like eighty, like just stereotypical like bleeps and bloops yeah. of just like. If someone was going to make fun of like how video or like if a movie, if they were trying to set something in an arcade, but they couldn't afford any actual video game sounds, they're just like, okay, put in all these irritating bleeps and bloops. Like that's exactly what Robotron sounds like, but it's, it's awesome. And like all the colors are so bright. And I love the way that the game just gives you no chance to like breathe or anything. You just start and there's robots all around. And you gotta destroy them all, and then there's just this flash of color, and sort of it zooms, just color wipes the screen, and then you're right back in it, and it yeah makes this crazy like noise. That was not accurate at all. No, that was close enough. I mean, I, 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 this game it always amazes me like what the human brain is capable of processing. Like, like we're kind of looking at this, and like this is just shapes. Like any objective observer is shapes, but if you're at the controller and you're looking at it, it's like, okay, I get it. That's a person and that's a robot. I avoid this and I go for that. Like there's some kind of weird visual language going on here that is uh, making these images kind of work. And I don't know, they're putting you in the headspace of being like the last survivor in a robo-apocalypse and it really works. So on on the N64, we got the option to use two controllers at the same time. And for Robotron, for Robotron 64. 64, so we could use the uh, uh, two analog sticks to kind of better simulate the experience, which uh, was fun and worked well. And that's not an option here. Here we just have to use the uh, D-pad and the C buttons. And I really didn't have a problem with this. I don't know. It... No, you can you can switch it. All these games give you pretty um, lenient abilities to set your controls. Um, but... So you can set it to, like, control with the pad and shoot with the, the joystick. Mm-hmm. But the joystick doesn't work very well in four-way movement. It feels very weird and inaccurate. Yeah. But the, the C buttons feel really good. Like, it's not arcade accurate, but it, it does feel really yeah. good. Um, I mean, I don't have too much more to say because we did cover Robotron pretty well. But uh, it's still great. It works fantastic. Uh, I, I enjoyed it on this version. Yeah, I, I had really no issues with it. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. Like um, some of the reviews I read for this arcade collection were talking about how sometimes the video and audio emulation isn't great, and there was a lot of flicker in Robotron mm. in this version of Robotron. But I imagine that there's a lot of flicker in the arcade version of Robotron too, and that's just going to be part of the experience. There, there was only um, one game that I encountered on this cartridge that I felt like actually suffered from some kind of aesthetic slowdown, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But like. Yeah, I, I think I yeah, mean, I didn't have any problems. With I Robotron. think Robotron is the best game on this collection. Um, I think you can make an argument. Be, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just I love Robotron so much because it's so fast and intense, and yeah, I, I think it just controls really well. And it's a game that do, hasn't really been 
done better no. by anything else that does kind of a similar thing. I agree. And um, I hate to cut Robotron talk short, but, you know, we have covered this before. So uh, please go Fair back enough. and hear us uh, talk more about Robotron in our older episodes. For now, let's move on to Joust. Joust is probably the arcade game I've played the most while understanding the least. Uh, okay. We, we had one of these cabinets in my college, like in kind of the common area. So I played it quite a bit, like on the arcade cabinet. And it took me a really, really long time to figure out what the hell I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> because I thought like, all right, this is a jousting game. So you probably want to charge like into the other guy who's got a lance, you know, like you would in a joust. And not quite. No, not quite. That, that You're going to die a lot if you do it that way. But but I'll, I'll dig into that. Um so yeah, Joust was also created by Williams in 1982. The idea here is that you are playing a knight who is riding a ostrich. Uh, you're in a medieval <laughs> land where this now, thing all happens. All great works of art start with great premises, Oh, Steve. they definitely do. They definitely do. First, two dudes losing their car. Will they ever find it? Let's find out. Uh, and in this case, a knight astride a flightless bird who suddenly can fly. Um, the, they explained that I read in an interview with the creator. He said, uh, he, he wanted to have a flying game, but he felt that the Eagles looked silly when they walked. Uh, so he wanted something that could walk and could flutter a little bit. So to be fair, it is hard to get your ostrich off the ground. Uh, you have to continually press the button to flap. If you want to stay aloft, it's got a fairly, uh, heavy physics engine on it so like you can feel the weight of your character and you really need to jam on that button if you want to fly um so your goal here is to take out all the other evil knights on the screen they're all flying around riding buzzards you need to take them out by either you have to be very very precise and that's what i didn't get the first time playing this so you have to either hit them in the head uh, by like bopping them or like hitting them with your lance just slightly above their lance or you can take them out from behind Oh, I didn't know you could get. I didn't know you could go from yeah, behind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's uh, tends to be the more, most helpful way to do it um, because it's very finicky about what will kill you and what won't. Once yeah. you take out an enemy, and they I, drop this green egg, which you have to collect. If you don't collect it in time, it'll turn into a knight, and the buzzard will stop and pick it up. Which is funny. Yeah. yeah, that that's clever because it's like you kill the knight. And then the knight turns into an egg and hatches into a new knight. And the, the buzzard is still flying around. It's like, why doesn't the buzzard make yeah, an egg? Yeah, right? It's, it's implying that, like, the knights are the reptile thing. It's a very weird world that they've come up with in this. Like, I don't really understand the rules of this world. Um, yeah, so I think the, my first several times playing this, I never even saw a single egg. Like, I didn't really get what I was supposed to be doing. I'm just like, all right, what is the point of this? I'm just like, every once in a while, if I got really lucky, I would make the two lances bounce off each other. If you hit it at exactly the right pixel, you can do that. And then, like, you can both bounce off and not take any damage. But I never really succeeded in killing any Buzzard Knights. Uh, This time playing it at home, I did much better. But again, not as good as Nicole, who just, like, immediately... Like, she got, like, a chain of, like, four knights in a row, just, like, bop, 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 and just, like... She claimed she didn't know what she was doing, but I don't believe her. (laughs) She always claims that when she beats us in games. You know, she's a ringer. She's a ringer. She's definitely doing something. Um, yeah, so what do you think about Joust? I don't know. Did you spend much time with this one? Um, yeah, I like Joust. I think, um, aside from, like, the clever and just sort of weird world that it takes place in, um, I think it's a cool mechanic of how having to sort of constantly, um, tap on the button to keep aloft, and, um, I think that the hit detection usually works pretty well. 
Um, this was another one that it did feel a little off from how I re remembered it in the arcade. Like, things seemed to be faster, and it was really hard to control my bird when it was running on the ground. Mm, that was true. But maybe, yeah. maybe that is just kind of part of Joust. Um, that is something I remember from Joust. It's just kind of... I don't know. It's all about momentum and physics, you know? So, yeah. like, they, they move more than they should when they're walking forward, just like they did in Jet Force Gemini. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but mostly it works pretty well, and I really like... Um, I mean, it seems like a very good two-player game on this collection because yeah. it's, it's a co-op game, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is Which is just a cool change of pace from what else you get. Um, and it, it does feel kind of like the most... I don't know, the most story-driven game, even though, like all the other ones, there's no way to beat it or anything, but it does feel like it kind of has the most backstory going on. There is on. a world, yeah. It's clearly, like, it's dropping you into a world that's clearly not our own, which I can appreciate, and that's that's conveyed pretty simply. You know, uh, it's... I, I definitely like this game better having played it now than I did uh, back when I used to play it. I think just understanding the mechanics a little more and kind of figuring out the nuances of it, I think uh, it's pretty satisfying, actually. Um, yeah. And, yeah, all these games, whatever, whoever came up with that sound effect that they use in a lot of games when you destroy robots in Robotron or you smash into someone in a joust, it's just a great sound oh, effect. Oh, yeah, totally. It's kind of this... Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Defender actually had some of the best ones because uh, yeah. especially if you get to the second or third levels when you get to the, some of those cluster bomb enemies... If you fire a smart bomb and there's a couple of those around, the whole screen is just fireworks, and it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, again, so this franchise, Joust, was very popular when it first came out, but it was never really followed up on. Uh, we have one sequel, Joust 2 Survival of the Fittest. Uh, that came out in 1986, and its big additions here were more vertical levels, like taller levels, and you could also choose to play as a Pegasus instead of an uh, ostrich. Um, but most of these games are just so hard to sort of make sequels on because they're all sort of built upon these very simple premises and very simple gameplay. And so if you're sort of you either your sequel isn't doing very much to enhance it like Defender yeah. 2 or you're just sort of losing the heart of what makes it special like Robotron 64. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's, it's hard to follow up on these. Um, and Joust 2 was a very, very, very big bomb for uh, for Williams, unfortunately. this I think it sold, it said they only sold about a thousand copies of uh, the arcade cabinet of that, which is a big, big drop after Joust, which you can still find in most arcades everywhere. Um, and there was no home port ever created of Joust 2 until these compilation discs. Um, and there was never another proper game in the series. But interestingly enough, we may not have seen the last of it because a Joust movie was in development as a major tentpole blockbuster back Wait, in 2007. Yeah, Didn't we make a bunch of jokes about this? I feel like, like we probably I did. Like an episode a long time ago, we came up like, wouldn't it be awesome if they made a Joust yeah. movie? But I don't think that there was a real... Was, like, I don't think it was based on... I think we were just making it up. It's possible. Or we could have been talking about Rampage at that time. But, like, it's okay. possible. But I do remember talking about this like it could have been a real thing. It was supposed to be a real thing. In 2007, it was being situated as kind of a big tentpole movie. Uh, it was going to be kind of like... They were pitching it as sort of a medieval Mad Max kind of vibe. Uh, I don't really know what that looks like because I don't know. That's already well, kind of medieval. Ostriches, right? I guess. Yeah, just. I mad. mean, probably not. But yeah, that, I mean, that sounds awesome. I I want. I just want it to be taken very seriously. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Of like all these characters are riding on ostriches and they're doing this sort of ornate 
joust over lava. Oh yeah, they're gonna have to put some. When his ki- hand reaches up and grabs them. There's gonna have to be some kind of like crazy uh, uh, ostrich armor or something on the CGI ostriches to make them look super badass. I'm just curious how they're gonna handle the knights turning into an egg and then turning back into a knight situation. <laughs> we may find out because. Uh, yeah, studios were excited about this movie. They wanted it to be a big, like, summer movie, but production got delayed, and then Midway filed for Chapter 11 in 2009. However, Warner Brothers, who I said we would bring back later, uh, they bought the rights to Midway's library with the intent to produce feature films. One of these has already come to pass. That was uh, Rampage. And that one was, like, a modest success. So it's actually not impossible that we're going to see, like, a movie version of joust in the near future in the next couple of years i guess maybe it would just take sort of the rampage mentality of like you just kind of make a generic monster movie and you throw that name on it yeah. and maybe you put like an arcade machine in the background yeah 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 it, and so this they're like oh it's a night movie and for some reason there's an arcade machine in the back of the tavern and this is another one like rampage that doesn't necessarily have like great name recognition so you can kind of make a video game based movie without having to market it as a video game based movie you know so you can do it um well speaking of uh, i've got more movies to talk about here with spy hunter spy hunter is one of the few games on this cart that actually did start with bally midway back in 1983 this was their first game as a uh, production company uh this is one of the earliest examples of a car combat game and it's kind of operating on that same trope from spy movies where like you kind of have a swiss army car you know, that can do anything you needed to in any situation. Spy Hunter's going for that. So you are... Uh, this game is super cool. Like, just, I... The the presentation here is really good. Yeah, no, it, it looks pretty good. This is the game I had struggles with, though. This is the one that I encountered some uh, slowdown. Like, which... Okay. There should not be slowdown in Spy Hunter, <laughs> no. like, ever. But, uh, so, yeah, basically, you are... Uh, you're driving vertically up the screen. Uh, you have a machine gun that never runs out of ammo, so you can just constantly jam on that. And your whole goal is just to take out all the enemy cars, which are all of the cars. And uh, no, I, see, I, I don't think this is true because I always have trouble figuring this out. There's a lot of cars sort of in the way or motorcyclists, but if you shoot just sort of the red cars, it says no score up. Oh, at the does top. it? I didn't even notice. Um, so I think you've just been killing civilians. Oh, Steve. I think you've just been mowing down random passerbys with your machine gun. Well, car. if it's if it's any consolation, I died in a horrible car accident immediately after it doing is. that it's every time. A very good consolation because later, as you get farther in the level, like actually these sort of ominous black cars pull up and they have like uh spikes on their tires and you know you reenact the scene from yeah, ben-hur yeah. where they push you off the road into the bridge and you drop off the smoke screen that's what ben-hur was that's about, exactly right? what it was about yeah i i, I stayed awake through that entire movie <laughs> who, 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 who do you talk this, to <laughs> this game has a really brutal uh shift mechanism oh, you can push your car into high gear and it goes so I fast i hate that so I, much it's just like why even put that there this is just like oh here do you want to die faster like there's no way to con- you go so fast you can't control like what the obstacles coming your way are you can't steer around anything yeah because they just instantly sort of smash into you it's cool you have like this weapons truck by your side that you sort of will pull up in front of you you can drive into the truck and then you'll get either um a smoke screen behind you or an oil slick and or apparently missiles, missiles yeah. so i never got far enough to get the missiles. yeah this is a really weird way to do power-ups like that's kind of basically what these are but you have to Go for a little bit. Wait until the uh, icon starts blinking that your truck is ready. Then you press the separate button to summon your truck. And then you need to line it up. You can't stop. You have to drive up into the back of the truck while you're both moving. 
and uh, then it'll pull over and you'll pop out with new weapons. But this is very hard to do because you can absolutely take out your own truck. Uh, I learned that the hard way many times. Uh, And enemies do not stop trying to attack you or the truck, so it can be very, very difficult. Some of the more annoying moments I found were you die, and when you die, your car wreckage stays on the screen. And and you can hit that wreckage when your new car pulls oh. up. You can hit that wreckage and die. So, which is very odd. So, are we implying that it's just a constant slew of new spies that are getting deployed? Or like, like oh, 007 died. Double mm-hmm. Yeah, you're maybe there. robot cars. I don't know. Like, but yeah, yeah it's it, okay. it is just seemingly an endless amount of spies to like drive along this suburban highway and kill people. Um, yeah, and you can you can either take them out with your machine gun or you can ram them and knock them off the road, which is always pretty satisfying, but you can get just as easily rammed. Um, for a spy car, like a super powerful spy car with all these weapons, you're pretty weak. I think uh, a good hard sneeze will take your car out and drop you on the side of the road, so you have to be very, very careful. And yeah, that, that boost mechanic on there, that shifting gears mechanic, I think is just too powerful and basically doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I, to put it bluntly, I don't think this game is very good. Oh, no, no. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, this is a game I really loved when I first played it on the NES when I was very young because it's undeniably cool. Like, and I, as an idea, it's a very, very cool one. And this is also one of the few games that has music in the collection. They actually licensed sort of the first part of the Peter Gunn yeah. theme. Dun, 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 dun. And it's, it's, that's where you want your music sting in your oh, yeah. game because most people are only going to be playing it for about less than a minute before they lose all three of their lives. So each time you restart, you want to hear that theme again. Yeah. But as it goes on, it just cuts out and you're in silence and again. And it's great. I, I've, I know that theme so well. It's a Harry Man- or Henry Mancini theme. Uh, it was a TV show that only lasted from 1958 to 1960. Story I've ever heard of. Like, there's no reason to go back and see Peter Gunn, but that that theme song is iconic, and a lot of it is because of Spy Hunter. This was actually. Sp- I also oh, yeah. learned uh, learned from the trivia that it was going to be the James yes, Bond. Yes, it was. Theme. Yeah, it was, this was supposed to be a Bond themed game. I don't know what exactly happened, but uh, I think they learned that the Bond license was too. It expensive. could have been, or it was competing with the ColecoVision game at the same time, and. Who wants to compete with ColecoVision? Uh, yeah, so uh, this one was followed up much more regularly than any of the other games we talked about. So uh, Spy Hunter 2 came out in 1987. Uh, again, that was a kind of a flop. These All of the games on this disc or this card seem to not really endure to a second game. Uh, but yeah, Spy Hunter 2 came out in 1987. I think the big gimmick on that one, if I recall, is that it's the view is behind you now. So kind of like more like OutRun. Okay. Um that sounds worse, sounds worse. Honestly, Yeah, it but... basically was worse. <laughs> yeah. Then the NES received kind of an exclusive sequel called Super Spy Hunter, but it was actually a different game over in Japan. It was just like very, very, very similar. And in order to avoid a uh, copyright infringement, they just like sold it to the Spy Hunter people and released, here we, here we oh, made this I for see. you, go ahead. Um, <laughs> so then in 2002, the series received a very high profile reband, rebrand on 6th Gen Systems, uh, that Spy Hunter was like a million plus seller, and it was a, a strong reviewed. I played that one. That's pretty fun. I really have to play that because every time I see footage of that game, like when your car turns into a boat, I'm like, this game looks it's amazing. It's super fun. I, I think it'd, it, be, uh, it'd so. be up your alley, actually. The first one, at least. I can't vouch for any of the sequels, but one of the sequels is very interesting to note. So there was a direct sequel to that Spy Hunter reboot in 2003. And then in 2006, we got Spy Hunter Nowhere to Run, 
which stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who at the time was attached to star in a feature film adaptation of Spy Hunter that was supposed to come out in conjunction with this game. Uh, but that movie got caught up in development hell. The Rock wound up uh, walking away from it, uh, ironically, to go do Rampage in the end. Um, and yeah, <laughs> the film just never materialized. So this is one of those weird examples where we have the adaptation of a game or the game adaptation of a movie adaptation of a game that never actually existed. Uh, if that makes any sense at all. So <laughs> it does not, but I will take your word for it. For yeah. It. Either way. Um, beyond that, we got a spy hunter reboot in 2012 for the Xbox live arcade. Uh, and as of 2015, the movie was still being kicked around. Last I heard it was supposed to be directed by the guy who did Zombieland. Uh, but the rock is no longer attached and I kind of doubt we'll ever see that one at this point. Um, we'll see. I don't know. It just feels like it falls into a very similar aspect as Rampage or Joust of like this is a generic spy car rate, car driving yeah. movie and like and Henry Cavill's yeah. oh, in it. Oh god, you're exactly right. That is I was thinking who would be in it now? It's 100% going to be Henry Cavill. If it were 5 years earlier it would be Sam Worthington. Um, all right, let's talk about our last game on here. Uh, Root Beer Tapper. Uh, this is the other Bally Midway game on this Midway collection. Uh, originally released in 1983, it was originally just known as Tapper, and it was actually sponsored by Budweiser, with early arcade cabinets actually using Budweiser tap handles instead of uh, joysticks, which is Which is awesome. very clever. I, I saw one of these. There's a cool arcade um, in Tacoma, Washington called uh, yeah. Dorkies. And um, they had one of these original Tappers machines. Yeah, yeah, there. we had one um, in in Denver at an arcade called One Up, uh, like a little arcade bar. They they had one of these as well. So I've played it a little bit. It's fun. Um, yeah, but uh, the developers of this game specifically developed it to be a game played in bars. Like it wasn't like an adult oriented game, but they're like they wanted to make. They they canceled their custom revenge or customer's revenge yes. arcade game and decided to go. They moved on to beat them and eat them and were like, nope, <laughs> let's let's instead do something more appetizing. Oh, nothing more appetizing than with... beat them and eat them. Ugh, God, I've lost so many friends by making them see that game. Like they don't believe that it exists, and then I show them, and it's like, oh, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. You know what this <laughs> thing is. I don't know. You're not my people. Well, Steve, we can be friends Yay. together in awareness of beat them and eat them. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it, it's the ties that in, bind. in 1984 they rebranded this to Root Beer Tapper uh, because they wanted to expand into arcades, and they didn't want to be accused of selling alcohol to minors. So they removed all the Budweiser logos. They changed the color of the drinks that you're serving to be slightly darker. They called it Root Beer Tapper, but nothing else has changed. Uh, this is the same exact game in both versions, just those minor aesthetic differences. So in this one, you play as a bartender. He's never actually called Tapper in the games, but he appears in the Wreck-It Ralph movies, and they refer to him as Tapper in that. So I guess it's his name. Um Basically, you're kind of an old-timey-looking bartender, like you're in a uh, barbershop quartet or something in your free time. And you're at one end of the screen, your customers are coming in at the other, and your job is to pour beer, serve it to them, and then pick up glasses before they fall on the ground. And this starts getting more and more frantic, because apparently you work in one of those bars that has four bars in it, and uh, a bunch of kegs, like, lined up. I mean, there's no practical way that this bar would, like, I, this bar would look insane in real life. This bar also has the advantage of having a dimensional vortex <laughs> near the top and bottom. So if you're at the top bar or the bottom bar and you press up or down, your character will emerge through the top or the bottom. Man, of the I appreciate that like you too. Go from the, 
Yeah, it's very helpful for getting from one place to the other, but you're like, what What just yeah. happened? I mean, so the it starts off very easy. It's that you press one button to fill the beer, one button to shoot the beer down the bar. Uh, pretty simple. So it's a quick double tap to do a single move there. But then once you've served all your customers, you have to start keeping an eye on the glasses because they will... Because they'll, they'll slide start sliding back. the yeah. empties back. And if you let even one glass fall on the ground, then you're going to lose. So it takes some crackerjack timing. Uh, you have got to be very wary of uh, your button presses. So like if you're in the middle of pouring your beer, you can't press down to move away without losing all of your beer. So you have to time it out very precisely. Uh, and then in between each level, you kind of get these little mini games like a, like a three card Monty kind of thing where you're locating the chicken up can. And Tapper does a cute little animation every time you beat a level where he's like kicking yeah. a glass. But it's crazy because you lose when one of your glasses gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so he celebrates winning the level by throwing a glass up and destroying sure. it. And you're like, why didn't you Why didn't you make me lose earlier it's, when it's that It's kind of like rewarding yourself with a cupcake for holding back from eating the entire cake. You know, I think that's what <laughs> okay, he's doing. Okay. I think he needs to keep these urges in check and still acknowledge, you know, that he really wants to break some glass. Um, yeah. So what I want to say about Tapper is this game, like, is really good. I love good, Tapper so much. it looks amazing. Oh, man, yeah. This really, like, this looks kind of nothing else. It looks, it's got a very distinctive hand-drawn cartoon style that I love about it. Uh, and it looks light years past the other games in this collection. I think it probably came out yeah. a little later. But, it's um, weird to think, yeah. yeah. Like all the characters have a lot of personality, and it does play uh, music, I think, through yeah, all the levels. Yeah, yeah. and you, uh, it's, it's very bright and colorful. Like, once you beat the first two levels, you're out of the bar, and you're, like, working at a rodeo, and then, like, at a, a circus, a couple other different places, like... I think that it's uh, you start you start yeah. in a bar and then you go to like a sporting oh, yeah, event, yeah. Um, and then the third one is you're like in a punk rock oh. bar. And I was in the trivia. In the trivia, it said Tapper or the creator of Tapper got the idea for the third level by listening to what bands. And the answer that they had was Devo, the Talking Heads, and some other new okay. wave band. But I just you know the name of the band is not the Talking Heads. Yeah. It's, the name of this band is Talking Heads. Come on, trivia. Yeah. You got to you got to double check that stuff. That's not an air you want. It's kind of like uh, you don't call them the Eagles. They're just Eagles, man. Just just Eagles, you know. Um yeah, no, uh, uh, Tapper it looks fantastic. Oh, oh the yeah, last, yeah. Sorry. And the last level is you uh you are in space and you are serving oh, aliens. Oh, excellent. I haven't made it that far. No, it, like all the other games, it does get quite hard, but it has a it has a better uh, buildup of. It difficulty. does, yeah. It kind of walks you into it. Um, yeah, it, sometimes like patrons will drink at the bar. Usually they'll take their beer and leave, but sometimes they'll drink at the bar, and you need to give them two or three beers for them to go away. Uh, just like in real life. And sometimes they'll leave money like at one end of the bar, and you have to run all the way down the counter to get it for some extra points, which is another really smart risk and yeah, rewards. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, again, depending on how much you care about your high score. Some people really care about that. I never do. I mean, if you don't care about your high score in this game, that that's all there is, yeah. essentially. So. And uh, this is another one that tragically was really not followed up on in any way. And again, you know, maybe you don't need to uh, because it is very, very simple and it kind of, you know, it, it said all it had to say. But uh, I think I think you could see the legacy of this game in Overcooked. I think uh, I think that's kind. Of, this is kind of an early. They need like a multiplayer. Oh, multiplayer tapper, tapper would, would be, be fun. Yeah, 
But I mean, it is kind of that same sort of vibe, not just the fact that you're like in a food service environment, but also just that it's that same level of frantic multitasking, you know, you need to be on top of the dishes and then you need to serve. And then, yeah, so it's just kind of a, a simpler overcooked, um, which is a, a compliment for sure, because I love me some overcooked. Um, the last thing we will talk about today is the the actual compilation itself. There was indeed a Midway Arcade Classics Volume 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it did not make it onto the N64. That was exclusive to Dreamcast. And that one included Spy Hunter, Paperboy, 720, Moon Patrol, Rampage, and Gauntlet. Uh, not a bad lineup, but Moon Patrol I don't know anything about. Moon Patrol's cool. I, I like Moon Patrol a lot. It's much better than 720, which is That's like a garbage. really shitty like skateboard game that you need a uh, you need like a ball, uh, a trackball controller to play that one, don't you? Yeah. I don't know. I have never been able to play 720 worth anything. I just know that the NES game is one of my least favorite okay, games fair. ever. Because for one reason, for some reason I owned it. It was one of the few games I had for NES, and I could never figure out how to do anything. Wasn't that a Tengen cart? Yeah, I think Probably. it was. Probably. No, it was. It was. It had the official okay. Nintendo series. All right, all right. Gauntlet, Gauntlet was a yeah, Tengen yeah, cart. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So after that, uh, Midway kind of rebranded these compilations, and they became Midway's Arcade Treasures. And they re- released uh, three of these on PS2, Xbox, and GameCube. And I would strongly recommend these over this one. Uh, oh, yeah. Much no more question. games to play with. Plus, you get to get in some classics like Smash TV and NARC and Mortal Kombat. And the ev- NARC and Smash TV oh, are And they awesome. even include some, like, fun, shitty games. Like, you can play Pit Fighter or Primal Rage. Like... Uh, in 2012, Backbone Entertainment released a 31-game downloadable compilation called Midway Arcade Origins, which has pretty much all these games and more. I think the one I had uh, a while ago was whatever one had Total Carnage on it. I think it's Volume Two. I think that's yeah, two, yeah. Uh, and that one's great. There's there's just there's a yeah Total Carnage. Is there's a lot, a lot of fun. to dig into in that whole game, and uh, I, I would recommend those over this. But let's yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, these are games that yeah. Let's get into the rankings. Do we want to rank quick, uh, yeah. our, our thoughts on the games themselves? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I'll go ahead and go first. <laughs> um, my favorite game in this collection is Robotron. I think Robotron is a total classic. Um, my second favorite is Tapper. I was surprised by how fun uh, yeah. Tapper is, and especially how um, <laughs> colorful and appealing the graphics were. And then uh, Joust, I would say, was next. Um, and probably I know I'm okay. And then uh, I guess to def- yeah. So those are the three. Those are the three games okay, I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Robotron, Tapper, and Joust. And then I guess I would say Defender, Spy Hunter, and then Sinistar. Okay, all right. I think we're gonna go a little different on that because I'm I'm just I'm agreeing that Robotron is probably the best one on here. Uh, th- then I'll agree that Tapper is probably next. And then I'm gonna say Sinistar for me. Uh, I really wow. got into it. I really liked Sinistar. I'm very surprised. Um, then I would say uh, Joust, then Defender, and then Spy Hunter is going to be the bottom one for me. I think it just uh, it's too complicated. It's too fast paced. It's too easy to die. It's just not that much fun. I will say I think I like most of these games more than the Namco ones. Yeah. Like um, Namco has Miss Pac-Man and Galaga, which are total classics. But then like the other four games on there. I, I think I would I would if I was stuck with one collection on the system I would take I think this I probably one. would too I think Namco had a better presentation uh, overall I think you know the the style here is just kind of unnecessarily ugly and convoluted and I don't really need that trivia game although you know we did refer back to it a couple times so I guess we got something out of it yeah 
I was glad it was there. Yeah. It was just, I don't know. If you if you want to lose more friends after showing them beat them and eat them, you can make them play that <laughs> trivia game. And they're like, why are you making me play this game that I have no idea any of the just answers to? Um, yeah. All right. Are you ready to move on to our rankings for this game? Yeah, absolutely. So each week we are ranking all of the games we have just played. Uh, and I, I will go first on this one. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I have a soft spot for these types of compilations. I, uh, as kind of a video game history nerd, it's fun to be able to go back and access these conveniently and, uh, easily. So I'm, I'm a fan of these. Uh, I don't think this is one you should go out of your way for, you know, over more modern releases, which are probably much cheaper and more accessible and easier to play. But as far as compilations on the N64, I would give it the slight edge over Namco. So accordingly, I am putting it at number 83, right above Namco Museum 64. And that would be right below uh, Ridge Racer 64. So yeah, yeah. Nice. Solid place. For- I, you know, you've you've convinced me. I was looking at this exact same area where you're talking and number 83 sounds like a very nice appealing spot. Um, so I'll put it there, which is right ahead of Mario Golf. No, I'm going to put it right ahead of Indiana Jones and the Infernal okay. Machine. Um, I think it's important. Uh, this is my takeaway here. I think no matter who you are, you need to have Robotron in your life somehow. Oh, yeah. Whatever, whatever method that is, maybe you have an arcade near you that has it. Maybe you need to run it in MAME. Just get Robotron Have you somehow. heard the good news about Robotron 84? <laughs> yeah. 2084. This this would be the strange world of me going around handing out yeah. pamphlets. <laughs> and as our Lord Robotron when the, when says, the, when the Robo Apocalypse comes, will you be ready? That's the, oh horrible sound. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. We are Ultra 64 Podcast. Uh, I did want to give a quick shout out to one of our listeners, uh, Mark Shoemaker. Who uh, they, it, we're recording this a little bit ahead, but today he sent us uh, an amazing, amazing, amazing fan poster that he did himself. Uh, just put so much work into it, and it it really just kind of blew my mind and and warmed my heart that uh, we would get a little piece as cool as that. You can find that and, on you our know, Twitter. It's, it's been a it's been a bad week just in general for for history and humankind. But this poster really brightened up. I don't I don't want to oversell it. But it may be the greatest thing since the invention of the I, wheel. I, I, at the uh, very least, of like uh, the pinwheel, like like it's yeah, at exactly. least as great as that. <laughs> it, 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 it's right up there with the ball and cup. Yeah, exactly, game. <laughs> I love ball and cup. No, so <laughs> the little marble that you spin through the so maze. So check out uh, at uh, Ultra Sixty Four Podcast on Twitter. Uh, you can see it there. I also put it on our Instagram, same address. And then check out Mark Shoemaker's art. He uh, operates out of the Shoebox. That's S C H U instead of S H O E. So the Shoebox. Uh, check him out there. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Mark. We loved it. Uh, I was just completely thrilled about that. So next week, we are talking about something that I'm also completely thrilled about to be talking, because I like talking about bad games. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that these are bad. We are going to be closing the books on id Software and talking about two games, Hexen and Daikatana. Daikatana. Ooh, you've been hyped for this. infamous uh, flop from John Romero, and Hexen, uh, a Doom clone with, like, medieval shit, I think, right? Kinda? So tune in next week to find out Steve's dominant or submissive status relative to John Romero. <laughs> Reasonably <laughs> sure he's going to make me his bitch. We'll find out. We'll find yes. out. All right, everybody. Uh, until next time, 
<laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> I'm gonna maybe cut that because I blew out the speakers. Night, everybody. Run, 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 beware, I am.